Hey, howdy, hey. This is Vic Vimes speaking. Welcome back to Mondo Bad Media. Today is Wednesday, December 26th. I had an excellent Christmas yesterday, and I hope you did too if you celebrate it. If you don't, that's no problem. Absolutely feel welcome to listen to this podcast, even though today I will be reviewing a Christmas movie, and not just any Christmas movie. I will be reviewing a Christian Christmas movie. It is called Saving Christmas. Now, I'm trying not to beat around the bush here, because I tried about a week and a half ago to do this recording on this movie, and I couldn't get through it without losing my fucking mind. So I scrapped my old review, and I'm starting afresh with this one, and I really want to get this movie over with, so I might as well dive right into it. This movie has the dubious pedigree of being on Wikipedia's list of films considered the worst, as well as the IMDb Bottom 200 list. Even though this movie came out in 2014, uh, which is about the time when strategic voting rendered the IMDb Bottom 200 list kind of useless, uh, nevertheless, it still remains, I believe, in the top 25, because, oh lord, does this movie suck. This movie sucks so hard. So you'll have to forgive me because I do have to preface this with a little bit of discussion in order to set up what I'm going to be doing in this review. Uh, this is a Christian movie, and in the past, I don't know, couple of years, I've gotten very interested in theology and philosophy of religion and stuff like that. So this is kind of a perfect movie for me to kind of cut my teeth on that kind of scholarship. I want to really unpack a lot of the stuff that makes this movie so utterly toxic and intolerable. So to do that, we're going to have to go back in time a bit. We're going to have to go back about 100 years. And, well, actually more than that, more like 150 because we're in the Victorian era. And we're going to have to talk about a man whose name was John Darby. Uh, John Darby was... I don't really want to call him a theologist because his scholarship is shitty and I'll explain why. Uh, but John Darby essentially founded this splinter group of, I suppose, Protestantism called uh, premillennial dispensationalism. That's a big, scary word. I'm going to break it down, though. Premillennial, meaning we live in the millennium or time period or dispensation before Christ comes back down to earth takes his followers up into heaven, and then uh, Armageddon breaks loose. The uh, colloquial term for when Christ comes down to bring his followers back up to heaven uh, is known in America as the rapture. Now, John Darby was sort of one of the first people to float the concept of the rapture in Christian scholarship. I can firmly say there is no mention of this thing called the rapture in the Bible. It is not in there. It has never been in there. It was John Darby's reinterpretation of a couple of passages here and there. And mostly it has to do with characters such as Methuselah, who lived for 900 years and then ascended bodily into heaven. Um, John Darby resultingly has created this belief system in which the rapture is a thing that people ardently, truly, sincerely and desperately believe in. It is essentially a fanatophobic view of the world that's uh, death phobia, fear of death, that is utterly paralyzing, and that is a, ultimately one of the most destructive belief systems I have ever encountered in my entire life.
Now, obviously, there's wiggle room in any sort of belief system, so not everybody who believes in the rapture, rapture believes in it the exact same way. Going forward in history, uh, one of the things that really spearheaded the popular concept of the rapture and that led to an explosion in um, this particular strain of evangelical Christianity was something called the Schofield Reference Bible, which came out in the 1920s. And it took John Darby's heretical misinterpretation of the Bible and made it more easy to approach. Now, what you have to understand about John Darby's premillennial dispensationalism is that it boils down to, and this is a term used by evangelical Christian scholar Fred Clark, a man who I'm a huge fan of, he's an enormous inspiration, an incredible writer. Um, he puts it that John Darby essentially invented a magic Bible decoder ring system of belief. What this belief system requires you to do is sit down with the Bible no, not that part. Not that part either. In fact, why don't you just ignore all of the parts that have bits about Jesus doing good things and supporting uh, downtrodden folks and stuff like that. We're going to just ignore all that. And we're just going to focus on revelations, bits of Daniel, little itty bit of Ezekiel here and there, and a couple other books. The reason you're only picking and choosing specific passages from the Bible is that John Darby's interpretation of the Bible is that it is literally actually a book of prophecy that predicts the future. So in the Bible, in John Darby's view, when Paul, for example, is talking about Antichrist and the anti, he uses it in the plural, Antichrists, there's more than one. What the John Darby belief system has boiled this down to and boiled this down to and boiled this down to is they have created a magical checklist of traits that supposedly embody what they believe the Antichrist to be. The Antichrist in the Bible, again, is not really referred to in the singular. It's more of a plural thing. It's this idea that you will encounter people in the world who will have ideas that are incompatible with the views of Christ, against Christ, Antichrist. It is not a specific person who is here to herald Armageddon. That's never what it was about. It was essentially Paul and John and Mark and Luke and all the other guys. They're basically saying, hold true to the things that are moral and good. Do not listen to people who would deceive you for some ulterior purpose. Kind of what it boils down to. There's a lot more to it than that. And there's going to be a lot of stuff that I have to gloss over just to keep this review under a half a fucking hour. The other problem with John Darby's belief system is that going back to that idea where you're picking and choosing specific passages from the Bible, there is literally no rhyme or reason to which passages apply to us in this dispensation, in this time period, and which bits are quote-unquote okay to ignore because they apply to some other time period that we've already lived through. <sighs> well, what? What the fuck? The Bible was put together as a whole thing for a reason. Like, I mean, what the fuck, guys? What the absolute fuck? If it was supposed to be cherry-picked, chopped up, and remixed the way that John Darby did it, wouldn't they gone and have done that back in the Council of Nicaea? 
Why is it that John Darby is the only one who seems to have figured this thing out? You'd think that if the Bible was able to be as simply interpreted the same way that John Darby does, that everybody would do it. Everybody who approaches that text should come away with the same belief system, wouldn't you think? Because if it's so simple and so obvious, there shouldn't be a need for anything like the Schofield Reference Bible. You should just be able to sit down with the raw text and be like, oh yes, okay, page 56, here's my Antichrist checklist. Page 58, here's my list of uh, warnings of the apocalypse. But no, it's not like that. It's tons and tons and tons of books all put together into one that you read and mull over and, and, and interpret. It's not a book of prophecy. We're not talking about Nostradamus here. And then to backtrack a little bit, the reason that this belief system is so inherently destructive is because of the inherent thanatophobia it embodies in people, or imbues in people, I suppose. What the belief in the rapture subsequently leads to, if you believe strongly and utterly that we are living in historic times, that we are living in the lead-up to the end of the world, and that you, because of your personal, true, and real belief in Jesus Christ, our Savior, will be taken up to heaven, and I'm using the phrase taken up to heaven because that's usually what gets used. They literally believe that you will bodily ascend to heaven, and there's a specific passage in the Bible that goes... We all shall not die, but shall be changed. Something like that. And that gets literally interpreted as we literally aren't going to die, guys, because Jesus is coming and he's going to save us. Ugh. And then it, it, it snowballs. It snowballs. It snowballs. It gets bigger and bigger and worse and worse until there's these cascading failures and in interpretations of how reality operates and and... You end up with literal, actual Republican lawmakers, men who have people's lives in their hands, who refuse to engage with environmental concepts purely because they literally actually believe that the world is going to end, so there is no point in trying to save it. And it gets even worse than that. On top of that, there is a certain faction of people within the premillennial dispensationalist community who want the apocalypse to happen. They literally want the world to be destroyed. They will gleefully watch as the rest of us burn, tor are tortured, and die at the hands of God's minions, and they'll do it laughing. They want us to suffer. They think that we deserve to suffer because we do not have the right, true, and real belief in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We have the wrong belief system, and the only reason we believe the wrong thing is twofold. A, because we're stupid and not able to interpret the simple version of the Bible that John Darby provided for us, and B, because we're actually bad people and are willfully going against Jesus Christ. So I'm ten minutes into my review. I have not actually talked about saving Christmas yet because I have to set all this stuff up in order to carefully 
and precisely examine why this movie breaks on so many different levels, I have to lay all that out for you. You have to understand, Kirk Cameron literally believes John Darby's interpretation of the Bible. He literally believes this is true. He literally believes evolution is a sinful belief. He literally believes the Earth is 6,000 years old, and he literally wants the apocalypse to take place and burn the rest of us unbelievers. But uh, who is Kirk Cameron? I realize I have to set that up now. Uh, Kirk Cameron was a child actor in the 90s. He starred in a show called Growing Pains. And he was a cute little kid and everybody loved him. He never evolved past that acting level. Uh, And it's interesting because he actually played against Leonardo DiCaprio in the show. And look at where Leo is now. Look where Kirk Cameron is now. It's kind of interesting. You'd think that if God really was on Kirk Cameron's side, he would be in DiCaprio's place and vice versa. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And there's a couple of reasons for this. I'm not going to sit here and say God doesn't like Kirk Cameron. I mean, I just did. But what I am saying is that Kirk Cameron's belief system kind of leads to him being unable to engage with something called humility. You find when somebody bases the core of their identity around one singular aspect of it, you end up with a person who is very fragile. Kirk Cameron is a fragile person. He has to hold on to his belief system. Otherwise, he doesn't have anything else. He spent so much time and so much effort and so much energy promoting and sharing and creating under this banner of premillennial dispensationalism that if it turns out not to be true... He's wasted three decades of his life. Three decades. That's longer than I've been alive. And, like, that's got to be galling. The defense mechanisms he has in place are extremely strong and extremely apparent. Now, I'm going to be pretty mean to Kirk Cameron. I have a very low opinion of him. I think he's pretty scummy, honestly. He's taken copies of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, ripped out entire chapters, rebound the book, including his own creationist beliefs, and then distributed those copies of of Origin of Species to universities with the same cover as a regular copy. That's pretty fucking scummy, if you ask me. Like, you don't do that. You don't lie to people. In fact, I'm pretty sure lying is a sin, Kirk Cameron. So... Don't come to me saying that I'm being too mean to Kirk Cameron. And don't come to me saying I'm being too mean to Kirk Cameron because I'm an atheist, because I'm not. My own beliefs don't necessarily factor into this review, but actually they do. They really do, because I hate this movie, and there's a reason I hate this movie. I believe this is a bad movie, and I believe it's a destructive film. So, with that out of the way, I can move into my next point, which is that watching this movie makes me want to put butter knives through my eyes. It's infuriating. It is one of the most self-aggrandizing, dick-sucking pieces of media I have ever come across. And it opens with Kirk Cameron in a Christmas sweater, sitting on a little couch. He's got a cup of hot chocolate. There's a Christmas tree behind him. And he's talking about how people are trying to put a wet blanket over Christmas. And he doesn't like that. He thinks that those people are not good people. You can tell he knows that they're not good people because of the way that he's acting. There's a certain sort of uh, paternalistic 
pat on the head kind of thing going on here, um, where what is going on behind the scenes is Kirk Cameron has two jobs with this movie. Number one, he has to pay lip service to his premillennial dispensationalist friends. He has to make people who believe that, who are watching this, believe that they believe the right thing. And so he has to reinforce their beliefs in various and sundry ways. And one of the ways he does this is through the way that he treats his other audience. He's got two audiences. He's got the premillennial dispensationalists. And supposedly, this movie is also aimed at people like me who are not part of that belief system in hopes of contacting us and reaching out to us and bringing us into that belief system. In essence, Kirk Cameron is trying to meld two completely incompatible audiences and approach both of them at the same time in the same movie. The end result is a fucking mess. This movie pisses me off. Right from the very beginning, this movie makes me angry. And it has a lot to do with Kirk Cameron's performance. You'll notice that I'm not using character names with this movie like I have in previous reviews, and that is because there are no characters in this movie. It's literally Kirk Cameron playing himself. And I don't know who the guy who plays his brother is. He might be the director. I'll have to double check. But he's also not acting. There's very little acting in this movie. It's hardly a movie at all. It might as well be a lecture. The only thing I can compare Kirk Cameron's quote-unquote performance to in this movie is the last interview that serial murderer Ted Bundy ever gave. The last interview Ted Bundy gave was with another evangelical Christian who I believe worked with Focus on the Family. And what Ted Bundy was doing was he was desperately trying to do two things. Number one, he wanted to get a stay of execution. He absolutely wanted that. Absolutely, 100% did not want to be executed. Number two, he also wanted to feed this guy bits of information that would reinforce this evangelical worldview he had, specifically about pornography. I don't know necessarily why Bundy would be against pornography. Maybe he did blame it for what he became. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter what Bundy necessarily believed about pornography. What matters in this interview is what Bundy is doing to bait his audience. So Kirk Cameron does a lot of the same stuff. Kirk Cameron is not as smart as Ted Bundy was, and it shows. Kirk Cameron is not a good actor. He's not even good at pretending to be an actor. Kirk Cameron never moved on from his child star status. He is just as much of a mugger at the camera. When he's on camera, you know he, he wants the camera on him and on him at all times. When the cameras are rolling, it doesn't matter what other characters in the frame are doing because Kirk Cameron is the one that your eyes are drawn to because he can't stay still. It's not like a twitchy, nervous ADHD thing. It's literally like he thinks because the camera's rolling, he's got to be doing something. And that's stupid because a lot of times less is, less is more in acting, especially when it comes to film acting because we can see the subtleties and stuff because the camera's there, Kirk! The camera's there for a reason. You're not on stage. You don't have to over-exaggerate the way you do. Ugh. And the other reason I compare him to Ted Bundy is that you can tell, like, both with Bundy and with Kirk Cameron, watching these two men put up this facade, Kirk Cameron, you can see the gears turning behind his head, and he's like, oh, yes, I'm going to say this this way, just like that, and then I'm going to take a sip of my, my hot chocolate and look over the rim of it at the camera, and they're going to love that. Whereas Ted Bundy's more like, 
Well, I know if I lower my eyes at this point when I'm speaking, then he's going to think that I'm ashamed. So I'm going to do just that while I'm speaking, and he's going to, ah, yeah, he picked up on it. Okay, let's keep going. There's no actual acting taking place. It is all a very cold and very cynical calculation on the part of both of these men. I don't think Kirk Cameron's a serial killer. I'm going to throw that out there. I think he's creepy and scummy. I don't think he's actually, like, harmed people the way that Ted Bundy did. I think he's done a lot of destructive stuff, just not in the same way that a guy like Ted Bundy obviously did. Kirk Cameron's nastiness is a little bit more coached. It's a little bit hidden. It's a couple of steps back. But again, just to emphasize, again, this isn't a movie. This is more like a lecture. It's meant to be didactic. It's a teaching thing. It's supposed to show us evil, icky, non-Christians what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it in order to be saved and beloved by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, just like Kirk Cameron is. We all want to be just like Kirk Cameron in the end of the day. That's what he believes anyway. Um, Part of the reason this movie generated so much like hatred is because after it started getting negative reviews Kirk Cameron flounced and was like you guys are just so mean because you're atheists and that's because you're atheists and you're attacking me because I'm a Christian Kirk Cameron doesn't sound anything like that I just thought it would be really funny to do that voice um, it's essentially about as hysterical and, and uh, histrionic as that voice the other thing that really frustrates me about this movie is that when Kirk Cameron goes into, like, teaching mode, because there's, like, the the setup is that Kirk Cameron's brother in the film, not happy about Christmas, he's not having a good time, so he goes and hides in the car, and, oh, God, I just imagine being trapped in a car with Kirk Cameron lecturing at you, and now I really want to drink really badly. Oh, my God. But, so either way, Kirk Cameron's in the car, and he starts telling this guy, his brother, stories that bring the Christmas spirit to him. It could have been kind of nice and kind of sweet, but because this movie is so smug and so self-satisfied, everything about this is so calculated and almost like an algorithm. It's There's something very computational about it. You put in X inputs to the atheist and then Y outcome comes out and when you get Y output, then you just put in Z input, and then you get the ultimate output which you want, which is a conversion. It's this. It's almost like how pickup artists seem to operate on this idea that if you do the real-life quick-time event correctly, then the lady will have sex with you. It's about as simple, idiotic, and boiled down. There's this idea that if you follow a proper script when you're evangelizing to people that they will respond to it the way the script says they should. And if you, for some reason, encounter somebody who goes off script, you're the one with the problem because you didn't do the script in the proper way, and that's why the atheist didn't convert or the Jewish person didn't convert or whatever. So this movie is destructive in that sense because it's feeding people this idea that if you just meet people and tell them the story of Jesus and all this stuff, then they'll have to believe you because you followed the right script. That leaves two options for if they don't follow the script. Number one, you messed up the script, so it's on you. You fucked up. Or they're literally just a bad person who's willfully refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. It's either or. It's not usually both and. 
So you'll find there's a lot of self-blame and a lot of internalized self-hatred that comes with this particular strain of Christianity because there's also this huge impetus to convert people, this idea that if they don't convert, the afterlife will be so horrible and hellish, etc., etc., that if you don't attempt to convert them, you're doing them a disrespect. So that's why some evangelical Christians approach everybody with the same fucking script about do you know Jesus Christ or Lord and Savior or whatever the fuck. It's this desperate idea that they constantly have to be talking about it in order to make sure that everybody possible could be saved, but at the same time, they're also not working that hard to actually save people. It's very push and pull. It's very topsy-turvy. It's up is down and down is up and cats and dogs living together, total anarchy. But anyway, so let me backtrack a little bit and get into how this movie tries to approach the topic of, of teaching people about Christ. Now, I have to admit something here in that Kirk Cameron does have a couple of interesting and valid points about the Bible in the magical flashbacks where he's talking about the birth of Christ and the swaddling cloth. Kirk Cameron is right to point out that the swaddling cloth that Jesus is wrapped in in the uh, story of Christmas is a foreshadowing of the empty robes that his followers find when they go to move the stone away from the cave after he died. That's a correct and valid interpretation of that symbol. He is also surprisingly and shockingly correct about the origin of the Christmas tree. There's been some very bad pagan scholarship recently that asserts that the Christmas tree is of pagan origin. Now, I think it's entirely possible there was a parallel evolution between Norse culture and Germanic culture. Because, let's face it, in the middle of winter in that area of the world, the only tree that looks kind of pretty is a Christmas tree, is a fir, is a pine. And furthermore, he doesn't make this point, but I will because it's important. What happened a lot around that time of year was a lot of what we call liturgical plays, so teaching plays, I, plays that were supposed to teach people Bible stories even though they weren't able to read themselves. And one of the stories that often got told around this time of year was from the book of Genesis. And when you're putting on a play when you want to teach people. You kind of want to have props, right? And again, what kind of tree doesn't look shitty in the middle of winter? A pine tree. And again, the decorations on the tree represent the fruit that was on the trees in the Garden of Eden. So again, Kirk Cameron is actually correct about that. And I hate having to say that, but credit where credit is due, he is actually right about the origin of the Christmas tree. So... He gets a couple of things right and every fucking thing else wrong. So I think the sum total here is still about negative 50 billion, if you ask me. And as I was saying earlier, there is a way that you could approach this that would actually be palatable and possibly enjoyable. You could have it so that the Kirk Cameron character is replaced by somebody who A, can actually act, and B, isn't so up his own ass that is breath smells like shit um you could have that happen you get i don't know sir anthony hopkins in there get sir anthony hopkins on the horn we'll we'll do a movie with him where he converts a guy to christianity now i'm not a huge fan of 
stories like that, there are people who are, I get it. Like, there's an appeal to seeing somebody being saved in that capacity. Uh, We don't necessarily, as humans, want to see other humans fail. I don't think that that's actually as common a thing as people like to believe. Um, I feel like where Kurt Cameron's Saving Christmas has gone wrong is the people who made it already know what their answers to all the questions are going to be. They already know that they have the correct belief, so they're not even really trying to reach me or you or whoever's listening to this who is not a premillennial dispensationalist. So it's a little bit... It's like watching a lecture or listening to a bunch of friends talk, but they've got all these inside jokes that you're not necessarily a part of, and it's kind of awkward and uncomfortable because you're there, but they're not really acting like you're there. And I also got to touch really briefly, well, maybe not so briefly, but this movie's also kind of racist. There are two men of color in the movie. One of them is painted as sort of a crazy conspiracy theorist. He's still Christian, so it's okay that he's a crazy conspiracy theorist, but we're still going to poke fun at him for being one. And there's a second guy who's just sort of, like, flamboyantly over the top and uh, ridiculous. And the two of them have a whole scene to themselves where they're talking about the conspiracy against Christmas and taking the Christ out of Christmas. And it's stupid and sucks, and they have a fucking hip-hop version of Goddamn We Wish You a Merry Christmas playing in the background. And I'm like... Can you not, please? Can we, like, just give these guys some, like, regular Christmas music and not emphasize the fact that they're men of color so that we can throw a bone to our watchers that are people of color? Can we not do that? Can we just treat people as people and not emphasize that aspect of their identity unless you're actually going to sit down and examine why you're emphasizing that aspect of their identity? I really don't think I'm reading too much into this because it's really quite shocking and obvious that these two characters are broad and stereotypical caricatures. And I don't know that Kirk Cameron realizes that the way that he's portrayed them is not necessarily the most loving. How about that? It's not a very Christian portrayal of Christian people. God damn it. So the whole movie is a little bit like... If you took that little tiny sequence in Charlie Brown Christmas where Linus is telling the story of Jesus, if you took that tiny little section, stripped it of anything resembling compassion and love, and then extended it to an hour and a half where it's just sort of like this is being beamed at you relentlessly, that's what you would have. I like the little scene in... Charlie Brown Christmas. I like Charlie Brown Christmas. It's actually my favorite Christmas special, full stop. But the thing about it is that it's not so self-satisfied. It's not... It shows us why people have that ennui and that tiresomeness about Christmas. When Linus gives his little speech about what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, it's uplifting. It's like... I know that you're seeing the bad things that have come from this, but please remember that there was a good thing that started this entire event. It's a, it's more reassuring than Kirk Cameron looking at me and saying, but some people want to put a wet blanket over Christmas. There's no accusational tone to Charlie Brown Christmas, 
it's more welcoming and loving in that sense. Whereas Kirk Cameron saving Christmas is you're a bad person because you're not believing in Jesus hard enough and celebrating hard enough and contributing to capitalism hard enough. That's a big part of this movie too. He makes a big deal over the pile of presents under the Christmas tree. And I'm like, dude, that's not even really that important to be honest with you. Like, didn't we learn all learn that from How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Have you not seen that, Kirk Cameron? Is the Grinch too deeds not words for you? Is that why you don't like the Grinch? I'm probably reading too much into that, but... Uh, again, a lot of Christmas stories are about people who have lost their faith but regain it. But Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas is not really about that. It's more like the brothers just having a couple of doubts that are okay to have, that it's okay to question the way that things are. There's nothing wrong with that. But Kirk Cameron insists, like, you're listening to the wrong people. Implying that the people that the brother is listening to are bad people and not okay people and not Christian people. So this movie is infuriating. This movie pisses me off. This movie was created, produced, distributed, and then consumed by people who don't necessarily have the media vocabulary that I have in order to be able to critically examine this piece of media from a scholarly perspective. That's not their fault. It really isn't. When you grow up as an evangelical Christian in the United States, there's like this entire parallel culture that exists there that is sanitized, that is stripped of humanity, that is stripped of sexuality, that is stripped of anything that is naughty, no, no, not nice. And that's the reason why, even though Saving Christmas is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my fucking life, it still has a certain amount of people who will point to it and say, yeah, that's a movie I really enjoy. They're just not able to articulate why they like it. And I can tell you the reason they do like it is because it reinforces the beliefs that they already have. The end of the day, this movie does nothing for me. This movie does nothing but piss me off. In fact, one of the things I haven't really touched on is that this is a presentation by Liberty University... I don't even have to look that up to know that that's essentially a degree mill. There's no way that that is an accredited college with actual professors involved. It is entirely possible that this is just another Bible college, which is a lot like college, but for people who don't think that scholarship is a worthwhile endeavor... It's college for people who don't believe that we should engage with the world on any sort of level and that we should keep ourselves separate and become so focused on the next world that we forget to live in the current one. And I think that's part of what really bothers me about the belief system behind Saving Christmas is this idea that there is no hope for humanity, it is all futile, and we should just let Jesus come down and let God destroy the world and start anew. It's like they're expecting to get a reset when we know we have no hard resets. I'm going to quote from a book that is very near and dear to my heart. It's a book that uh, I try to model my life after because 
Um, I've read it several times and I've examined it, and I feel like this book, The Havamal, is essential to my worldview and my belief system. But I'm going to quote it. There's a single passage in Havamal, which is essentially Odin's big book of advice for living your life the best way. Or the most wise way, I suppose. It's not necessarily the best way. There's certain points in it that I don't agree with, per se. But what I will quote is a very important stanza, and it's the first one I ever read out of Havamal. And it goes like this. Cattle die. Kinsmen die. You yourself die. The only thing that remains is the judgment of a dead man's life. So in essence, the Havamal Viking slash Norse outlook was that death is inevitable. Death comes to all of us. Death comes even to the gods in the Norse uh, cosmogony. But nevertheless, while the world still exists, and it will exist for a very long time, the only thing that matters is the deeds that you do on earth. The things that you do, and not the words that you say, has nothing to do with paying lip service. Odin was all about making material and present good actions, good deeds, deeds that are worthy of people talking about them. It was never about any sort of uh, self-aggrandizement. In fact, Odin is very against the idea of pumping, puffing yourself up that way. Um, sorry, this is getting a little bit deeper into my personal beliefs than I necessarily wanted. But nevertheless, uh, where I feel that the premillennial dispensationalist worldview breaks down is this refusal to engage with the inevitability of death. This refusal to acknowledge that there will be a hard stop. There will be an end to you. Not the world, but to you as a human being. That's a lot to wrap your head around. It's difficult and it's scary and it's hard. But we don't have to make that journey alone. And that's Part of what I think is emphasized in that passage of Havamal is this idea that we do not pass on into the next life without there being a legacy left behind. And to me, that's actually kind of comforting. This may be because I'm a mentally ill person, but I actually am comforted by the idea that there will be a point in my life where thy hand, great Anarch, lets the curtain fall and universal darkness buries all. That's very comforting to me because I know that no matter what happens, no matter what I have to go through, at some point I will be granted gracious, glorious death, no matter what fashion it comes in. There will be a time for me to rest. That time is not now. I don't know when it will be, but nevertheless, it is coming. It is on the horizon. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend like there's some way that I can possibly avoid or transcend death. I think that's a very that's a very foolish way to go about your life. It is stunting. It is reductive of what the human experience is about. So what can we learn from saving Christmas? 
I don't think we can learn a whole lot, to be honest with you. I think we can look at it as a piece of premillennial dispensationalist propaganda. And in that aspect, it is important to look at it for what it is. Propaganda. It was never intended to actually welcome, invite, or convert anybody to that belief system. It is intended for people who are already deeply steeped in it and who already believe in Jesus Christ the correct way. So there is no room for me in this movie. There's no room for you if you don't believe the same thing Kirk Cameron does. And there's no room for us as human beings who have follies and foibles and who don't necessarily believe all of the same things because we are unique as individuals. Anyway, I don't want to get too much more into this because I've already been talking for 40 fucking minutes about this goddamn movie and I'm sick of it. I want to be done with it. I will admit right now, I'm literally like 10 minutes away from the credits. I cannot bring myself to finish the last 10 minutes of this movie. I just can't do it. I am burnt out on Kirk Cameron saving Christmas and I swear to God, if anybody comes at me with some fucking bullshit about how I'm being mean to Kirk Cameron, I will come down you like a come down on you like a sack of fucking hammers. I don't give a shit, bro. You come at me, I got Odin on my side. Fuck you. There's no frost giants left in the world. What did your god do? I'm kidding. I'm seriously kidding. Like I'm not even gonna joke about that. Believe what you feel is necessary. Believe what makes you able to go on to the next day and continue your, your life. But don't come to me and tell me that I'm wrong for believing what I believe. Because, trust me, I have had the chance to sit down and examine a lot of different things about myself and about my beliefs, and I don't need anybody else coming at me and saying what you believe is wrong. I need to do that myself in order to be a healthy person. I don't need anybody trying to hold my hand and lead me to a particular way of being. So, in short, fuck saving Christmas. Fuck it so hard. Uh, I can't wait for Kirk Cameron's dirty little secrets to become exposed to the world. I really hope that they're not super gross. I just hope that they're hilariously gross. I really would love it if he was into something like hentai and had a ton of that on his computer that got discovered, that would be very amusing for me. But nevertheless, I don't actually wish him physical harm, or bodily harm, or mental harm, or any kind of harm in general, to be honest with you. I feel like his personal prison of premillennial dispensationalism is enough of a punishment as it is. So, in short, fuck saving Christmas. Christmas is okay, I'm fine with it. And uh, love your fellow man as thou would love thyself. Uh, this has been Mondo Bad Media. I'm going to wrap it up here because if I keep going, I'm not going to stop for another half a fucking hour. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Instagram, Sir Sam Vimes is the name. All one word, no caps. Twitter, Vic Vimes, no caps, all one word. That's V-I-M-E-S, and my name is spelled Victor with a K. Um, I am no longer bothering with Tumblr. I hate Tumblr. It sucked before this whole thing blew up 
in uh, Verizon's face. But it sucks double now. So I'm not even going to bother with it. It's dead. Mondo Bad Media on Tumblr has died. Um, if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, you can also listen to me on Bandcamp under the same name, Mondo Bad Media. And if you happen to be listening to this on iTunes, if you could very kindly leave me a review of some fashion, I don't care if it's good or bad. A review is a review. Feedback is feedback. That would be absolutely wonderful. And I will personally thank you on my next podcast if you choose to do so. Either way, I hope you've had a wonderful holiday season. I hope it continues to be good. And I will see you in a, in a couple of days for a good Friday posting. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening.